chicken noodle line. Information vegetable animal and mineral line. Know the kings of England and I quote the fight historical. From marathon to Waterloo, we know the categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. Lots of news. Ah. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. <laughs> Episode 19, The Matthews Memo. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the events of January 6th, 2021 in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. This episode is mainly dedicated to the memorandum dated December 1st, 2021, authored by Colonel Earl Matthews, a staff judge advocate serving with the D.C. National Guard on January 6th, 2021. The memo was written based from Matthews' own recollections, those of Major General Walker, the former commander of the D.C. National Guard and the current Sergeant-at-Arms of the House of Representatives, as well as the recollections of other officers in the room with them as events unfolded on January 6th. There have been a lot of developments in the investigations into the January 6th attack in the last uh, few weeks, But most of those developments have taken place behind closed doors. Last Friday was a very consequential day for arrests in the Capitol insurrection investigation. The most consequential in some time, as a matter of fact. So I'll quickly turn to the overall number of arrests. Do a quick segment I recorded at the D.C. Capitol in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then spend most of the episode on my notes from the Matthews memo. So let's turn to an overview in the events as a whole. First, here are the numbers, according to Sedition Tracker. There have been 696 individuals charged, which is an increase of 30 since our last episode. 326 indicted, an increase of 4 since the last episode. 3 deceased, no change there, 1 dismissal. And 149 convictions, an increase of 16 since the last episode. Again, mainly misdemeanor convictions. And 41 sentencings an increase of five since the last episode. So they're certainly not running out of people to arrest, and the evidence suggests that there are many suspects who have been identified whose cases are still being developed. From December 1st through the 7th, nine individuals were arrested, including several who were apparently identified very early on in the process. One of the most notable of these was one Justin Jersey, of Flint, Michigan, who was one of the earliest assault defendants to be identified and assigned the hashtag Fingerman by volunteer open source investigators. It does raise questions about the work process that the Department of Justice has in conducting the investigation, that a defendant who was involved in one of the worst assaults on a federal officer, a vicious dogpile assault that I already discussed in episode 8, the worst, as one of the worst assaults in in the Capitol insurrection, uh, is only just now being charged. Jersey joins other defendants in that assault. Jeffrey Sable, Peter Stager, Michael Lopatic Sr., Clayton Ray Mullins, Jack Witten, Logan James Barnhart, and Ronald Colton 
Maccabee. All right, now I'd like to turn uh, for a moment to a bit of a location reporting I did from Raleigh, North Carolina, in anticipation of an event that had been promoted by the Trumpist movement. I'm here at the North Carolina State Capitol on Saturday, November 27th. It's uh, 12.30 p.m. And I'm here because there was uh, scheduled a an event. There was supposed to be a we demand a forensic audit of the 2020 presidential election event sponsored by Ivan Reichlin. Uh, Mr. Reichlin, a uh, failed Republican candidate for office uh, who in his one electoral bid failed to gather enough signatures to actually run for office but nonetheless now counts himself as an election expert um, had scheduled a, a number of these events and this is supposed to be a recurring event at the Raleigh Capitol on the front steps well I am here at the front steps of the uh, Capitol and uh, for some reason no one has showed up there was a confused looking elderly man uh, earlier wearing a MAGA cap, uh, but he may have just been a, a tourist or a local. Um, it's a beautiful day here, so there's no reason why, you know, the weather uh, wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't have people turn out. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Not even crisp. I mean, maybe, I don't know, you know 45, 50 degrees, sun is shining, uh, the colors are absolutely gorgeous. Um, and it's actually a little sad. It's a little sad that there's, there's, there are fewer tourists here because if you did want to tour the, the state capitol, which I did just to kill time, um, you know, gorgeous day for it, gorgeous day to bring your family out and enjoy uh, the, the lovely grounds of the North Carolina state capitol. Um, and yet, if you are interested in uh, demanding a forensic audit of the 2020 presidential election in a state that was won by uh, Donald Trump, by the way, um, you apparently didn't show up. You apparently had better things to do with your life, which is heartening. Uh, perhaps all those folks are at home uh, doing jigsaw puzzles, eating uh, turkey. Um, the buzz here, of course, in, in Raleigh is the results of the uh, uh, NC State UNC football game. Uh, they play every year and they are rivals. Usually UNC defeats NC State, but uh, NC State scored uh, unexpectedly to come from behind. Uh, there was a deficit of nine points, and yet NC State managed to pull it out um, and uh, defeat their rival, UNC. So maybe people are nursing hangovers. Uh, there was apparently a lot of tailgating going on. Uh, the, of course, it was here in Raleigh. Um, but other than the football game, uh, you know, not a lot is happening here. I'm actually kind of happy to report it. So, uh, again, uh, have a lovely day. It's a, you know, first Saturday after Thanksgiving. But I guess, you know, it's Black Saturday, whatever, the, the day after Black Friday. But as far as people being bussed in from out of state to demand a forensic audit slash recount slash fraud it of a state that was handily won by Trump. Well, not handily. It was actually rather close. Um, nonetheless, that didn't happen. So add that to the list of, of things that didn't happen in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. Now, it raises interesting questions, right? Why 
why, you know, do these things at all? Why hold this kind of event if you're not really going to have anybody show up? Um, well, you know, again, they're trying to keep enthusiasm among grassroots supporters of Trumpism going. And there may not be much there there. I don't know, you know, why they would even want to audit the results in North Carolina, seeing as how every time it seems there's been actual election fraud in North Carolina, it's being perpetrated by Republicans, uh, as it was in 2018, uh, the most significant instance of election fraud uh, in the last 50 years, right, was perpetrated on behalf of the campaign of Mark Harris, a Trump-endorsed candidate for Congress. Um, but they're just trying to keep the movement going and trying to recruit people to keep the enthusiasm uh, for the Trumpist cause going, uh, even when they know, of course, that, you know, they're located, they're, what, they're, it's completely in bad faith, right? Uh, they're, they're not contesting the results, genuinely, of the 2020 presidential election in North Carolina because Trump won North Carolina, right? Uh, and it, it hung on swing votes. It wasn't fraud, you know? I mean, you had, uh, you know, a, a loss in the Senate, right? We, we didn't, uh, Democrats, you know, did not, um, win the, the Senate race, you know, it was on the same ballot, right? So the election was actually decided by, by swing voters. Um, you know, people who on the one hand, uh, you know, voted for a democratic governor and a democratic, uh, attorney general, Josh Stein, um, but you know, did also voted for, for Trump and it, it was hanging on, you know, tens of thousands of votes, uh, in terms of, of the statewide races. So, uh, you know, forensic audit wouldn't do them any good, but they're just trying to gen up support in advance of the midterms, precisely because North Carolina is an important swing state. Even though the House races uh, are taking place in districts that have been heavily gerrymandered, there's been cracking and packing. Uh, my own district, for example, I think is, you know, uh, nearly 80% Democratic, right? So they they pack Democrats into certain districts and then try to maximize the number of Republican plus five Cook districts. So that's what they're doing. They're trying to, to get good turnout in the midterms. And again, uh, you know, that's a call to activism, especially if you live in a swing state, um, get out there on the streets, knock on doors, because it is important that uh, Democrats not lose House seats in the 2022 midterm elections. All right, so now let's turn to the Matthews memo. First, some background on Matthews himself. He's a veteran of both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and holds the rank of colonel. He currently serves as a staff judge advocate in the D.C. National Guard. He has a background in the Trump administration as a political appointee at the Pentagon. Uh, he served on the Army staff and has served on the staff of the Chiefs of Staff, and Trump appointed him to work as acting general counsel of the Department of the Army, so that's the Army's top lawyer, and also principal deputy general counsel of the Department of the Army. So this isn't just a random Army colonel, some random Army lawyer. This is someone who spent time in the Pentagon as a political appointee. And as he writes in his memorandum, uh, in a bit of a digression, he is someone who knows many of the principles involved in the events he relates personally. He's on a first-name basis with many of them, which is part of why the events, are, I think, are so shocking to them, 
because as we'll see, and, and we already knew this, uh, but this is the most detailed account. The Pentagon deliberately stonewalled him and Major General Walker in their effort to get the National Guard deployed, first by a pointless phone call and then by a pointless video conference. Now, I believe that it's pretty clear there's an implicit strategy in this to insulate the Major General in command of the D.C. National Guard from the relevant civilian appointees who had the power to order the deployment of the National Guard. It was whoever, you know, important to whomever, uh, central organizers of the insurrection. It was important to them that at no point on January 6th, Major General Walker or his staff would be in direct contact with Ryan McCarthy or Chris Miller. Instead, they are spend most of that afternoon talking to people, first on a phone call, and then on a video conference uh, with uh, generals at the Pentagon who are not in the direct chain of command. I should note that I had originally intended to do an episode on a different topic this week. Um, I planned to look at the use of drugs by Capitol Insurrection defendants. It was just striking to me how many of them thought it would be absolutely vital to their efforts that they smoke marijuana in the Capitol. Uh, and it just goes to their judgment and says something about the movement. It's like they're a bunch of, you know, teenage stoners, except radicalized by fascist propaganda. Um, anyway, but then this, this memo came out, and it must have been given to the press uh, at more or less exactly the same time that it was given to the January 6th committee. I can only conclude that this is intentional, that Colonel Matthews, or whomever gave to the press, wouldn't make this public at a time uh, such as this without the consent of the committee. Now, as far as the document itself goes, it's 36 pages long, and I just haven't been particularly happy with the coverage it's gotten. Uh, this should be front page news everywhere, no matter even if you, you know, don't necessarily believe all of the contents. Um, some of the articles I've read about it just don't give any indication that the authors actually read it. They have essentially cribbed their notes off of other reporting. So I decided I would read the thing so that you don't have to and present my own notes. Um, now, I thought I'd be able to condense it, right? Uh, and instead, I wound up with more than 36 pages of my own notes. Um, so I do urge you, nonetheless, to read it yourself. Even if you've been following very closely, there are going to be things that are new to you from an insider, from someone who is intimately involved, and who got to observe firsthand how the Pentagon stonewalled the D.C. National Guard. This goes all the way back to one of the goals I set in for the podcast in episode one, um, to follow up on the massive failure of security apparatus to respond to the attack on January 6th, particularly the failure to deploy the National Guard, whose specific job it is, of course, to protect the nation's capital, as Colonel Matthews himself notes in his memo. Now, in terms of the style, the memo itself is a bit of a mixed bag. It's Colonel Matthews' work product, um, and he's the author, but he explicitly states that he's basing it not only off his own recollections, but also those of Major General Walker and other members of Walker's staff. And as a consequence, there are sections that are a little bit rough, as though it was drafted by a committee. So the first two-thirds of the memo are rather tight, like a legal document, but then there are sections that are replete with typographical errors, and then there are sections that repeat events and allegations that appear elsewhere, and there are some sections that actually just 
look like unedited notes, like two word sentences, stuff like that. So I say that not to detract from the memorandum itself, but um, I don't think that Colonel Matthews was actually working on this for 11 months. Uh, it seems to me like he might have been asked to do it fairly recently um, and then had to put it out before the draft itself was complete. Now, that may have had something to do with some of the people who were scheduled to testify this past week before the January 6th Select Committee, but that's pure speculation on my part. Um, so if you do want to read it, if you're just going to, if you're not going to read it particularly thoroughly, uh, I, if you want to just give it you know, kind of skim you might when you're cramming uh, for a test in uh, college, um, I'd point to the first half of the document itself as uh, being particularly fruitful, and then also the, the conclusion and the appendix, which consists of a series of unanswered questions that uh, Colonel Matthews uh, puts forward that I, th I think are particularly interesting. So I, before I, I go back into my own notes on this, I would also like to pay a quick note uh, to comment that this is a document by someone who's deeply involved and he has his own interests at stake. Matthews notes that the Department of Defense OIG report appears to be a very self-serving post hoc rationalization by officers associated with uh, Lieutenant General Walter Piott. But Matthews and Walker have their own interests, right? They, so, you know, no way's not self-serving here. Um, nonetheless, after reading it I, and the DOD OIG report, I do find this more credible, right? Uh, this does seem to comport with more actually what actually happened. And it pokes holes in the DOD OIG report, uh, some of which are, as, as I'll, I'll show, uh, particularly relevant. Um, but I just want to take a, a minute to note that Walker and Matthews have their own interests, whether they be careerist or elsewhere, even, even personal. I think in some sections there's, uh, there are, are part, parts where you can really tell that uh, on, on some deeply personal level, uh, Colonel Matthews is, is upset by what transpired on January 6th. Um, but nonetheless, it's been 11 months, right? Matthews and Walker could have come forward at some point. And when asked about the memo, uh, Walker, uh, General Walker said, well, it is what it is. Um, so, you know, this is not the last that we will hear, presumably, about the contents of the memo itself. But I do think it's worth noting that, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm certain, you know, that this does draw questions about the DID OIG report, which are shocking and significant, but also that um, there's that, you know, that postmodern problem uh, of the, the unreliable narrator, right? The title of Matthews's memo is The Harder Right, an analysis of a recent DOD Inspector General investigation and other matters. This title, The Harder Right, is taken from a quotation that serves as an epigraph for the memo. And that quote is, quote, may we ever choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, end quote. This is from Thomas Spencer Monson, a president and prophet of the LDS Church. That seems to be an odd choice for me. Um, one might have chosen something from a founding father, a political philosopher, a military figure, a jurist, or a 
public intellectual, I mean, which in a sense, I mean, Monson does sit in the latter category. But uh, Matthews here chooses an aphorism from a leading Mormon cleric. Now, I don't know if he himself is LDS or what the broader significance is. I'm not qualified to do a literary analysis, but it's an interesting choice anyway, because, of course, it has a double meaning, right? Hard right has uh, different meanings in this context. And yet, even on the face of it, although it shouldn't be hard for reasons to do with the culture of the U.S. military, I'll go into later, um, what Matthews and Walkers are doing is to stand up for the truth in the face of an attack squarely aimed at ending electoral democracy in the United States. That, that shouldn't be hard. Um, it should be reflexive. Now, the, the ingrained values of the U.S. military I'm talking about, uh, particularly when you're looking at the general officer level, are uh, deference to civilian command and control. Uh, you are, take your orders from the civilians who are in charge. We are a democracy and, uh, or, you know, a republic, if you want to, you know, toe that whole hard line, right? I mean, one could argue over the course of the time we have grown more democratic, um, you know, but be that as may, you know, a, a republic in the classical formulation, uh, we're relying on uh, elected officials, right? So ultimately those elected officials are the people who give the orders. And that is part of the understanding or should be part of the understanding uh, and, and doctrine of the United States military. Uh, this is what gets uh, General MacArthur, for example, in, in such trouble, um, you know, you are supposed to follow the orders. And, you know, and that's kind of the catch-22 that, that Walker finds himself in on January 6th. Um, he has to follow the orders of civilian commanders. Uh, he has to follow the orders from the Department of the Army and the Secretary of Defense. Um, and so part of the, the overall strategy, I believe, of the people who support the insurrection was to make sure that Major General Walker uh, was not able to actually contact the people who are directly in his chain of command. Um, and yet that shouldn't be hard, right? I, it shouldn't be, you know, hard for them to stand up for these values because they are central to how the U.S. military thinks about itself. They are uh, central to uh, the, you know, official ideology of every commissioned officer and non-commissioned people and enlisted people uh, in the United States military that you are subordinate to the civilian chain of command. So it should be reflexive. It shouldn't be difficult. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a, a, a title. And I, I think, you know, maybe part of what he means uh, is that, you know, Matthews and Walker are standing up to an effort to institutionalize a set of lies in the official account of the military response to the January 6th attack. And that means standing up to powerful people in the military establishment who have self-evidently, um, you know, a a attempt to whitewash the incompetence and or complicity uh, and or direct involvement, most likely, in uh, the self-coup on January 6th. So, I know. That's the, the, the title, it, it just strikes me as a bit odd. Um, in any event, in the introduction, Matthews says that the memorandum will do two things. First, 
detail the, quote, myriad of inaccuracies, false or misleading statements, end quote, in the DOD OIG report on January 6th attack. Second, detail false and misleading statements and documents submitted to the House Oversight and Reform Committee that will, quote, conclu conclusively show that the general officers made false statements to Congress. And uh, he then cites the relevant sections of the U.S. Code. And I believe these are all uh, Title 18. Uh, these are different sections. Um, section 907, uh, making false official statements, false swearing. And that's in the UCMJ. That is a court-martial offense. Um, and then there's Section 1001, false statements, a felony punishable by up to five years, eight years if it involves terrorism. And Section 1621, perjury generally punishable by up to five years. So there are uh, civilian and military charges uh, that he is uh, accusing, basically, to general officers uh, of violating. So that's what they're doing. They are uh, refuting these errors and lies that they see as uh, being contained within the DOD OIG and uh, report and others, you know, other folks at the, the Department of Defense uh, have attempted to establish the, the, the report as fact. And they're making an official allegation, right? So this is, you know, a document from an Army lawyer uh, who is charging that two general officers have committed chargeable offenses in violation of both civil and military law. So um, this is written by a military attorney, submitted to Congress. So it's serious, right? So a part of it is there's this avalanche of news, and um, I'd just like to kind of pick this out because I think that this document uh, ultimately could wind up, uh, you know, in maybe the removal, uh, possibly even uh, court-martial charges being filed against a three-star and a four-star general of the United States Army. So he doesn't actually name these officers in the, in, in the introduction, of course, but the officers uh, to whom he's referring throughout are General Charles Flynn, a four-star general currently in command of the United States Army in the Pacific, and General Walter Piott, Lieutenant General, three-star, who's currently director of Army staff. And it's clear that both uh, Matthews and Walker uh, also believe that there are other people who are lying about the events surrounding the attack, mentioning many others uh, who were involved in the preparation of the Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General report, um, uh, in including, and also uh, various civilian authorities uh, who took part in actions that are, are, are indefensible. Uh, such as Acting Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy and Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller. But Matthews here, again, is acting as a military attorney, and so that's why the allegations, the most serious allegations with references to sections of the code that have been violated, uh, are referring to these two general officers. In his introduction, Matthews takes exception to the way the Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General characterized the January 6th attack, noting that the report called it, quote, a protest. He corrects this and writes that it was, quote, an assault on our democracy, which occurred in the very seat of government. Not to call it what it was is to minimize the importance and gravity 
of what occurred, end quote. The next thing Matthews does is to outline a review of key events. Now, regular listeners will probably be familiar with what happened in the failure to deploy the National Guard on January 6th, but I'll briefly outline the version that Matthews offers here, much of which I believe to be accurate. Uh, if again, you know, he may have his own agenda, but part of this is uh, aimed at squarely at the DOD OIG. So in case you're, you've got both of these documents, uh, you, can, you can look at that uh, perhaps with a more skeptical eye. I, for one, you know, thought, oh, this is an OIG report. There aren't going to be lies contained. I was that naive, right, when, when I first looked at that. Um, and what Matthews does is, is basically a, a takedown of some of the, quote, facts that are offered in the DOD OIG report. And he painstakingly uh, compares uh, the version of events that he and Walker and the other members of Walker's staff were called on January 6th uh, with those offered by Generals Flynn and Piot in, and, uh, you know, the authors of the DOD OIG report. Um, so at 1.49 p.m. on the 6th, Major General Walker gets calls from the U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. Uh, who notes that there's been a breach of the perimeter and is asking for help. Walker immediately notifies Ryan McCarthy. At 2.30 p.m., a conference call is established between Major General Walker, um, Acting uh, Secretary of the Army uh, Ryan McCarthy, Metropolitan Police Chief Robert Conti, Stephen Sund, D.C. Deputy Mayor, Dr. Robert Mitchell, and U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division Chief Thomas Sullivan. According to their recollections, participants were informed that Ryan McCarthy was unavailable because he had to go see Acting Secretary Miller. Uh, instead, the Pentagon was re represented by Generals Piot and Flynn. So those are the principles on the call. You have uh, the D.C. National, Jar National Guard commanding officer, the Major General Walker from the Pentagon. You have uh, two staff generals. Uh, you have the D.C. deputy mayor, local law enforcement, the MPD chief, um, and federal law enforcement in the form of Stephen Sund and uh, the head of the Secret Service Uniform Division. So in Walker's office at that point in time, his staff are all assembled. And so, on the one hand, you have these civilian law enforcement, um, sorry, local civilian officials, uh, law, law enforcement, um, and then on this part of the, the, the call, you have the staff. Apparently, it's on speaker. They didn't mention that, but I think this call is on speakerphone um, because uh, these, other, these are other participants, presumably, were able to tell what was going on as well. Um, you have Brigadier General Aaron Dean. Uh, you have, of course, Colonel Earl Matthews, the staff judge advocate who's authoring the document. Uh, of course, you have Major General Walker himself. You have Command Sergeant Major uh, Michael Brook and uh, Walker's aide-de-camp, First Lieutenant Timothy Nick. So it's notable that everyone's in place except the Civilian Department of Defense leadership, who are the very people who have to give the order to deploy the D.C. National Guard. They have absented themselves, supposedly 
to talk to one another rather than taking part on the call where they could actually effectuate the deployment of the D.C. National Guard. Now, this is very convenient, right? So back to the, the timeline. So during the call, Conti and Sund request aid urgently from the National Guard. And at that time, General Piat says it would not be his, quote, best military advice to deploy the Guard at that time. Piat claims, quote, the presence of uniformed military personnel could inflame the situation and the police were best suited to handle the situation, end quote. Both Piat and Flynn expressed concern on the call that, quote, the optics of uniformed military personnel deployed to the U.S. Capitol would not be good, end quote. Chief Conti said that he would tell Mayor, Mayor Bowser that the Army was refusing to mobilize the Guard, and she would convene a press conference to make this known. A Piat asked Conti to please not do this. He claims that he wasn't refusing, but that the request would have to come from civilian leadership, who again had made themselves unavailable. Piat and Flynn uh, claimed that the best course of action would be to deploy the National Guard to traffic duty, to free up Metropolitan Police to deploy to the Capitol. Um, he also recommended that the Guard develop a plan to assist the Metropolitan Police at, quote, locations other than the Capitol. So, I mean, again, that's their response, right? This is rather urgent. The response is, develop a plan. And the Capitol itself, you know, has been breached. Um, but they want to develop a plan. And if we are going to deploy the National Guard, we need to develop a plan that involves deploying them somewhere else, not the Capitol. We don't like the optics. So the call ends at 2.55 p.m. General Charles Flynn then directs that a secure video conference be established between Army staff and D.C. National Guard leadership. This secure video conference begins at 3.05 p.m. with the same personnel present in the D.C. National Guard headquarters. So civilian authorities, the local authorities, uh, the federal law enforcement, none of those people are on the call anymore. This is just a call between the Pentagon and uh, the folks at the D.C. National Guard Armory. So um, Matthews details who is on the call at, at the Pentagon end. Um, at the Pentagon, you have General Charles Flynn, Walter Piott again. Uh, you also have General James McConville, uh, Chief of Staff of the Army, Lieutenant General Leslie Smith, the Inspector General of the Army, Brigadier General Matthew D. Smith, uh, Mr. Casey Wardinsky, uh, who is the Assistant Secretary for the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, uh, and his deputy, Mr. Marshall Williams. Uh, but again, uh, the only civilian official you have from the, the uh, administration doesn't actually have the authority to deploy the National Guard. At 5.08 p.m., General McConville, not Ryan McCarthy, not Chris Miller, but General McConville uh, has heard from um, the, the civilian superiors uh, that, you know, 
authorization has, has been uh, given. General Walker uh, then deploys the D.C. National Guard uh, immediately. So that's the, the time period under consideration. 149 to 508. Three hours, 19 minutes, where the Pentagon deliberately ties up the D.C. National Guard and also prevents direct contact between Major General Walker and either Christopher Miller or Ryan McCarthy. So that's the account of the timeline uh, that's constructed by Major General Walker and Colonel Matthews regarding the conference call and the video conference on January 6th. The next section of the memorandum details the irregularities and inconsistencies and outright fabrications that they allege are contained within the Department of Defense OIG report. And again, it is hard to really understand how significant that is, that you have a staff judge advocate and a major general uh, claiming that there are substantial errors of fact in an official DOD OIG report. First thing is that the DOD OIG claims that Ryan McCarthy was on the call for five minutes before he left. McCarthy was not. According to Matthews and Walker, Ryan McCarthy was never on the call, which is important, again, because Ryan McCarthy had the authority to deploy the guard. The DOD OID report claims that uh, Ryan McCarthy heard urgent pleas for help from Sund and Mayor Bowser at 2.30. First off, again, um, according to Matthews, McCarthy was not on the call. Secondly, Bowser was not on the call. On that call from 2.30 to 2.55, the D.C. government was rep represented by a deputy mayor. DOD OIG report cites unnamed army witnesses who make errors of fact repeatedly, including the claim, again, that Mayor Bowser said that she wanted to call a press conference. That was Chief Conti. Bowser, again, was not on the call. The DOD OIG report claims that McCarthy asked General Walker how long the quick reaction force deployment would take, and Walker said 20 minutes. Again, McCarthy could not have asked Walker that question because Walker was never on the call. The DOD OIG report also cites General Piot claiming that McCarthy directed Walker to move the quick reaction force to the Army. Again, <laughs> McCarthy was not on the call. So, you know, it is, is interesting, you know, why it is that the DOG OIG report is so insistent on the fact that McCarthy was ever on the call when, according to a room full of D.C. National Guard officers, he never was. Um, and again, he, he had one job at that point, right? His one job was to deploy the D.C. National Guard. So it seems, again, a key part of the plan was to keep McCarthy and Miller sequestered so that uh, no one could ask them directly for authorization to deploy the quick reaction force of 40 people who were at uh, the, uh, I believe, Andrews, um, who could have been deployed uh, very quickly. So we have the DOG OIG report making very specific claims that McCarthy was on the call for about five minutes, when in reality, he never was. And whatever you think of uh, Major General Walker and uh, Colonel Matthews' 
you know, self-serving agenda here. I don't question that at all. One iota. I'm sure that they are absolutely uh, correct in this. They have a room full of people who are willing to swear to this. And again, you know, this is coming from someone who is a former Trump appointee, right? So it depicts Ryan McCarthy as an active participant when he was never even in the room when it happened. Um, conversely, there is a person in the DOD OIG report uh, who is alleged to have been on the call. Um, and, you know, Colonel Matthews and General Walker say was certainly not. Um, and that's Mayor Bowser, right? And you also have uh, someone whose behavior uh, was minimized, first uh, denied, and then minimized by the DOG OIG report. Well, by the Army first, and then by the DOG OIG report. And that, of course, is General Charles Flynn, right? Uh, the Army offered up a couple of versions of this. And even, there was even a press release uh, to the effect saying specifically that Charles Flynn was never on the call. Then you have the DOG OIG report and... Um, you know, other official accounts from the army say, well, he was, he was there, he was involved, you know, he left uh, and went somewhere else. And um, according to Colonel Matthews and Major General Walker, Charles Flynn was present on the call. Uh, he was present on the video conference throughout all the way up to 5.08 p.m. and was an active participant. And the, the basis upon which the... DOD OIG makes this claim uh, is rather suspect. According to the official report, Charles Flynn listened in for a couple of minutes, didn't even speak. Um, and they, they do this on the basis of, quote, army witnesses who confirmed that Flynn's participa participation was minimal. Uh, here's a quote from Colonel, Colonel Matthews. Quote, these may have been some of the same, quote, army witnesses who, according to open press reporting, repeatedly and strenuously denied to the press for days that Flynn was even a participant on the 2.30 conference call, end quote. So, um, yeah, again, you know, there's that pr Pentagon press release that was later redacted that specifically said Flynn wasn't on the call at all. Um, and they also admitted his name from the official timeline that was issued on January 7th. So Walker and Matthews are very specifically uh, recalling here that Flynn was an active participant and stayed on until the end, um, which again, you know, you have sworn testimony, you have an OIG report, which is also a very serious document, um, and it's just lying. They're just, you know, lying about this central fact. Now, and they're doing it on the basis of, of these anonymous army witnesses, right, uh, who make other claims. Two army witnesses claimed that General Piot asked questions such as, what was happening at the Capitol? And what tasks the D.C. National Guard personnel would perform? Whether they should be armed? Who the quick reaction force would align with? and where the QRF would assemble as they arrived at the Capitol, end quote. And it again cites anonymous army witness claiming that, quote, no one on the conference call could answer Lieutenant General Piot's questions. 
Now, Matthews refutes this claim. He absolutely rebukes it. The D.C. National Guard was to be equipped by riot gear. Uh, they would assemble at New Jersey and Louisiana. They would report to the uh, U.S. Capitol Police. They would perform duties that were similar to those done in the summer of 2020. And the report, the OIG report, has Piat asking questions that Walker and Matthews say were never asked. And the answers were all things that were actually addressed on the call that were known to the participants. These were not, uh, you know, um, these are not mysteries. And yet somehow, again, you, you know, I mean, they have to get on buses and go to the Capitol, right? This isn't complicated. And in fact, this is the kind of thing that the D.C. National Guard has done and did recently. And in fact, still had equipment that had been issued to them specifically for December, uh, for, sorry, for the summer of 2020. And that equipment was, you know, many of them uh, had it handed and readily available. Um, but, you know, the, the, this, these anonymous witnesses keep saying, well, no, the, the National Guard, the D.C. National Guard, they, they don't know how to deploy to the Capitol. Uh, you know, it was up to us at the Pentagon to develop a, a plan. Um, whereas Matthew says uh, that, it, you know, I mean, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but it, it's not rocket science. Quote, you have what they had to do was, quote, get as many riot gear equipped guardsmen on buses and to the Capitol as soon as possible. End quote. That's the plan. That's what they have to do. Um, but the DOG is, uh, you know, saying, well, they, they weren't, you know, capable of doing this, right? That wasn't the obstacle. The obstacle was that they didn't have approval to do that. So, again, that's in Matthew's account. The DOD OIG report also claims that Miller gave McCarthy authorization at 3.04 p.m. And it also claims that McCarthy then retired to draw up plans for deployment. And yet McCarthy also claims that the approval at 3.04 gave Walker authority to support the Metropolitan Police and U.S. Capitol Police immediately. Christopher Miller specifically testified before the Oversight and Reform Committee that full authority had been conferred to General Walker at 3.04 p.m. Now, if that was true, it, it wasn't conveyed to General Walker. Uh, and again, they have a whole room full of D.C. National Guard officers who are willing to say that no one said at 3.04 that they had the authority to deploy to the Capitol because they would have deployed to the Capitol. So the OIG report also claims McCarthy briefed Miller on his plan at 4.30 p.m. And plan is in quotes. Um and part of the reason for this is it obviously it doesn't take 90 minutes to devise a plan to put guardsmen on buses and deploy them to the Capitol. Um, you know, moreover, uh, Walk, you know, Walker didn't need a plan from McCarthy. Uh, this is this is what they do. Walker was fully capable of doing what was needed. He needed to do. He just needed the authorization to do it, uh, according to the memo. So, quote, according to this narrative. Major General Walker was either unable or unwilling to develop a workable plan. So Secretary McCarthy took it upon himself to travel to Metropolitan Police Headquarters to confer with Mayor Bowser and Chief Conti and to, with their help, personally develop a plan for the deployment of the D.C. National Guard at the Capitol in support of the U.S. Capitol Police. End quote. 
So reportedly, according to uh, the timeline offered uh, in the official version, the OIG account, McCarthy was working on a plan from 4.05 to 4.30 p.m. Now, the OIG report omits, according to Matthews, it's true, it omits a 20-minute press conference that McCarthy attended with Bowser and Conti. And this press conference um, either begins at 4.30 or 4.45. There's actually a YouTube video of this conference available, and uh, you've got McCarthy uh, just, just standing in the background. Uh, he comes on briefly to say, oh, yes, we, your guard is on the way, even though he himself or never contacts General Walker to tell him that. He's got the time to go on a press conference uh, and announce that the guard is coming. Again, he hasn't told General Walker that, but he's talking to the press. Uh, moreover, uh, according to this official DOG OID, OIG report, uh, McCarthy has to reissue his order after the press conference uh, because, you know, Walker, presumably and inexplicably, failed to move as directed by McCarthy during a 435 phone call. So, and again, you've got this press conference that occurs. We know it occurs. There's video of it that doesn't happen, according to the DOG, uh, DOD OIG report. Doesn't happen. It's, they don't even mention it in their official timeline, even though the press conference itself lasts 17 minutes. And um, Matthew says that it's unclear why McCarthy took part in the press conference anyway. And if you watch the press conference, yeah, he's completely unnecessary. Um, there's an insurrection going on. Why would he take time to do a media appearance when what he's supposed to be doing is giving an order? So the official account from the OIG report also claims that McCarthy called Walker at 4.35 to uh, tell him that authorization had occurred. Walker specifically disputes that that happened. He only learned of authorization at 5.08, and that wasn't from uh, McCarthy. That was from General James McConville. And key D.C. National Guard personnel will all back Walker up uh, to say that um, this is all entirely false. And uh, Matthews calls this a planning narrative, right? What was happening between 3.05 and 5.08? Well, there was planning. And uh, Ryan McCarthy was drawing up a plan because somehow Major General Walker was incapable of uh, devising a plan to go to the Capitol, which, by the way, he knows where it is. Uh, you know, everybody has gone there before. They have deployed before in a very similar mission. And yet somehow... Uh, you've got the Secretary of the Army drawing up plans for deployment. Now, it all hinges upon this plan, right? This plan is extremely important. According to Ryan McCarthy, you have to have this plan before you can deploy the Guard, and you have to present it to Chris Miller, and Miller has to sign off on it. It's very, very complicated, but it's not. All he has to do at this point is to say yes. All he has to do is tell General Walker it's, it's go time. Um, but in any event, that's, that's what Walker is supposed to, or sorry, Ryan is, Ryan McCarthy is supposedly doing during this time. Ryan McCarthy is drawing up a detailed plan to deploy who they're going to liaise with, uh, where they're going to go, you know, all that stuff that, you know, supposedly the DC National Guard doesn't know how to do, even though they've done it. Um, and it's not this, you know, this is, these are tactical things that, uh, you know, the Secretary of the Army 
doesn't handle him. Does not. Uh, these are not matters for the secretary of the, the army. It's kind of like you know, in academic setting, you know, um, the dean doing the grading of quizzes, right? That's not you know, it's absolutely absurd. Um, all right. So key part that I think the media has kind of dropped the ball on here is that uh, Matthew says that this memo that is supposedly pivotal, that Ryan McCarthy is supposedly working on for like two hours, has never been seen. It wasn't issued to the D.C. National Guard on January 6th, and no one at the D.C. National Guard has seen it. And I question whether it exists. You know, let them, let them produce the plan. Everything in the government is time-stamped, right? These are all official records, and they are time-stamped. It's an electronic document. There's going to be full documentation on that. So what computer was McCarthy working on? Uh, where is the document itself? There, you know, and, and there's, this is, this, is, this is a huge question. If this plan is so important, show us the plan. Um, and, you know, there's no evidence that, that a plan even exists. And McCarthy couldn't go back and just, you know, create one and, and save it later, right? I mean, again, at this level, you know, everything is, is time-stamped. Um, McCarthy claims he was drawn, that the whole reason he went to uh, the talk to the mayor is uh, at Metropolitan Police Headquarters uh, is to uh, draw up the plan in consultation with Mayor Bowser and Chief Conti, which is ridiculous, Right. You don't need to meet with them to do it. The person, if you wanted to do anything with it, it would be General Walker. But again, he absented himself from the room. He didn't want to talk to General Walker at all. So his account and the DOD account both make such a huge deal about the need to draft this plan. So it's absolutely remarkable that apparently no one's ever seen and verified that this plan even exists. So that, you know, if you're going to remember one thing about this, uh, it's significant that Matthews questions whether or not this plan that Ryan McCarthy says he needed to present to Christopher, Christopher Miller uh, actually even exists. And, um, you know, why, why do you go to that press conference? It's obvious, right? Uh, it was because Conti had said, I, you know, if you're not going to let us deploy the National Guard, Bowser's going to hold a press conference. And it would seem to me that Ryan McCarthy goes to this press conference to tell Mayor Bowser, no, 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 no. Uh, we're coming. Uh, D.C. National Guard is on the way. I've already given the order, in fact. Uh, everything, no, nothing to see here. Uh, and, of course, you know, Bowser acts on uh, the, the assumption that, yeah, you know, uh, it, it looks like, we, you know, I've got assurances that the National Guard is on their way. So that's why it's so vital that he goes and participates in that press conference. He wants to make sure that Bowser uh, doesn't uncover and reveal to the public the truth, which is that he has refused or uh, neglected to issue the order for the deployment of the D.C. National Guard. And so, um, you know, that the media picks up, I think, on the, on the part where Matthews accuses two general officers of perjury. But this central fact is a little bit buried and it plays a major role in the Matthews memo, which is why I wanted to highlight it. It's a very specific allegation that Ryan McCarthy could be able to clear it up quite easily, right? Produce a plan. Here it is. Here's, it's time stamped. You know, this is what was so important that I had to draw it up. 
um, you know, to get Christopher Miller to sign off on it. And, you know, these questions would go away. And my only guess that, that as to why he hasn't done that is because he can't. Plan didn't exist on January 6th. That's not actually what he was doing, which raises broader questions about what McCarthy was doing during that time. So according to Matthews, the OIG report also, in addition to putting people where they are not actually located, uh, putting other people on a call who weren't on the call, putting people, uh, removing people from a call that they were actually on, uh, invents a number of phone calls. So at 3.05, uh, the official OIG report claims that McCarthy called Walker at 3.05 to tell him, hey, you guys can go. Now, you'll recall that 3.05 is actually the time when Walker and his staff were on the video conference with Piat and Flynn at the Pentagon. So there are details in the DOG OIG report that Walker and Matthews refute on point by point. Uh, again, these are details that are based on anonymous army witnesses. So I can understand why, you know, journalists might rely on anonymous witnesses, right? But there's no reason why an OIG report should have anonymous witnesses. This is supposed to be an official Army account. And yet, you know, there are just witnesses who are anonymous who are allowed to offer these versions of facts. If they are willing to do that, uh, the, you know, they should present themselves uh, for, to give sworn testimony. There's no need for these people to remain anonymous. So, you know, at this point, reading the memo, um, thought occurred to me that, wow, you know, that's enough, right? Uh, Matthews has already cited enough instances to justify convening court-martials, uh, courts-martial, uh, and also an independent investigation of the Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General. Um, but it actually gets worse, right? I, I know it's, it's hard to believe, but it, it does. Quote, the most glaring deficiencies and outright falsehoods in the DOD OIG report relate to events which transpired after Secretary McCarthy traveled to Metropolitan Police Headquarters at 3.48 p.m. to meet with Mayor Bowser and Chief Conti, end quote. So Matthews argues that this planning narrative was used, quote, to justify and delay inaction uh, of Army civilian leadership between 3.04 p.m. and 3.08 p.m. It strains credulity. In other words, it's a lie that was crafted out of whole cloth and fabricated in every detail. So here are the key elements of the lie that uh, Walker outlines in the memo. Um, that Miller approved the mobilization at 3.05 p.m. That didn't happen. That McCarthy wanted to develop a plan for Miller's approval. Uh, that didn't happen. And that Walker was unwilling or un unable to draft a plan so that McCarthy had to travel to Metropolitan Police Headquarters to personally develop the plan. Um, again, he did travel to uh, Metropolitan Police Headquarters, but uh, the real reason, implicit in this, and Wal you know, uh, Walker and Matthews aren't saying this, I'm saying that, he's there to stop a press conference that is saying that Civilian leadership at the Pentagon is stonewalling the National Guard deployment. 
That's why he goes to the Metropolitan Police headquarters, not because he's there to develop any kind of plan, which, again, he never actually issues to the National Guard. And which, in any event, again, that is not McCarthy's job. He has a major general to develop a plan. His job is to just give the order, and that's it. Uh, Major General Walker has operational command. So another point that uh, they allege in the uh, OID report that doesn't happen is that this detailed plan is drafted between 405 and, uh, you know, at the time that um, Miller supposedly briefed McCarthy uh, at 4.30, that he also has the issue that there's no input from D.C. National Guard leadership. Uh, Miller supposedly approves the plan in two minutes at 4.32 on a call with McCarthy and Chairman Mark Milley. McCarthy outlined in his detailed plan uh, to Walker at 4.35, right? So this is yet another fictitious phone call. There's supposedly a call between Walker and McCarthy at 4.35, which lasts less than five minutes. And McCarthy also then calls Governor Hogan at 4.40 p.m. All right. So during much of the time of the events under question, McCarthy is actually at this televised press conference with Mayor Bowser. So the OIG report doesn't even mention the press conference at all. So somehow, magically, McCarthy is on the phone simultaneously. He's calling Governor Hogan. He's on a a conference call with uh, Mark Milley and Chris Miller. Um, And yet there's video showing him uh, at a press conference with Mayor Bowser for 17 minutes, sometime between 4.30 and 5 o'clock on January 6th. So... Whatever he's doing, squeezing all this in, you know, and again, that's not even allowing for travel time. Um, you know, there's, there's really no account of it. So, you know, you've got fictitious phone calls. Um, you've also got a, a call that supposedly happened between Brigadier, Brigadier General Lenev, who called uh, supposedly Major General Walker at 425. Walker says, again, this call never happened. So, you know, it's he said, he said, who's right? Well, phone records exist. And so presumably Major General Walker has given his phone records to the committee. We know what calls were on the line from his end. And, uh, you know, we can see. So again, you know, 425, uh, Brigadier Lenev calls Walker, um, and not only did that call, according to Walker, never happen, um, but Lenev never called Walker at any point in time between 1.49 and 5.08. So you've got, again, just complete and utter fabrications. And I realize, you know, Matthews and Walker may have their own agenda in crafting this, but they can prove this. They can demonstrate it. There are phone records that I'm sure the committee itself probably already has. Um, the National Guard had been preparing to respond since 149, and some of them were all ready to go at the armory. And yet, you know, they didn't have to be notified to uh, prepare to respond by uh, Brigadier General Lenev, right? That's what the, the, the call at 425 
between the, the brigadier and the major general was supposed to do. Lenev supposedly said, okay, 425, you know, prepare to respond. Uh, they were, you know, some of them prepared to respond already. So Walker wanted to go from 149. And uh, according to his account, he was awaiting authorization from 149 onward. And that never came until 508. Uh, here's an excerpt from the memo again, quote, the notion that Major General Walker had to be told twice to deploy forces to the capital is as insulting as it is false, end quote. And also that all key D.C. National Guard personnel who were constantly with him will back up Walker uh, and demonstrate that this claim is, quote, an absolute falsehood. So, again, on one side you have people who are willing to give sworn testimony uh, that these calls never occurred. And on the other side, you have anonymous witnesses in an OIG report uh, who, you know, we don't even know who they are. And, uh, you know, let, let them swear to it if they uh, actually have accurate testimony they want to give to the committee or to anyone else. All right. So the next section of the memo deals with McCarthy's supposed plan and emphasizes the, that the D.C. National Guard has never seen it which, again, was supposedly necessary for the deployment. And again, the main thrust of this section is that no one uh, told the D.C. National Guard that that's what's happening, right? So you have this plan that's supposedly being cooked up between 4 and 4.30. Um, no one ever told the D.C. National Guard that that's what Ryan McCarthy was doing um, and that that's what the holdup was. And... Uh, according to the memo, this is because the plan was completely unnecessary. They wouldn't have told them that McCarthy was drawing up this plan because they would have they would have just said, look, we don't need a plan. Let's just go. Quote, in actuality, the assertion that the D.C. National Guard required the Secretary of the Army to provide tactical level of planning to deploy to the Capitol is patently absurd. D.C. National Guard maintained a joint task force led by Brigadier General Robert K. Bryan at the D.C. Armory to plan and conduct domestic operations in the city. End quote. So Matthews writes that there is one Lieutenant Colonel Craig Hunter who is actually in place as Task Force Guardian Commander at 2.55 p.m. all ready to link up with police at the Capitol. And again, that's one of the key components of this supposed plan. Who are they going to liaise with? Well, they've already got a Lieutenant Colonel Hunter there ready to liaise with MPD and uh, U.S. Capitol Police. So these are, you know, the kind of details that I, I think that the, the media have, have largely missed. Um, there's no need for a plan. There's no need to list, uh, you know, who they're going to liaise with because they've already got the task force guardian commander there at the Capitol ready to do his duty in defense of the Capitol. So the OIG report claims McCarthy issued orders at 4.30 and reissued those orders at 5 o'clock. Uh, according to Matthew's account, the National Guard had already positioned itself with command in place at the Capitol by 2.55 p.m. They had a lieutenant colonel on the ground at 2.55, and all he needed 
was the actual guardsmen. All he needed was his troops. And those wouldn't be authorized to get on the buses until 508. Now, uh, Walker notes that there's one source in this DOD OIG report who's anonymous in the report, but is likely Colonel John Lubis. Because Lubis is the only person who was able to corroborate Walker's claim that no authorization was given until close to or just after 5 p.m. So it's interesting that, you know, in this official narrative, even in the DOG, uh, DOD OIG report, you have an officer, anonymous in this instance, but, you know, now we know who it is. It's Colonel John Lubis, uh, who says in the report that no authorization was given to Walker until 5 p.m. And um, one of the other uh, potential anonymous sources is identified uh, by Walker and Matthews in the memo um, as, uh, you know, a, a, another potential person, a Major Matt Scott, who is McCarthy's aide-de-camp. Uh, another person who might be one of these anonymous sources is Lieutenant Court Colonel Audricia Harris and also Lieutenant Court Colonel Scott Mraz. And finally, Brigadier General Lenev, who uh, also has an executive officer who is an unnamed Army major. So with regard to the identity of these unnamed Army sources, uh, these unnamed, uh, you know, DOD people, these officers, we know who they could be. And so, uh, you know, again, the, the memorandum says, okay, if we want testimony from these people, let it not be anonymous. Let's get their, their sworn testimony. Um, it, rather than dealing with these anonymous people. And extraordinarily, again, uh, the OIG never actually interviewed any of Walker's staff. Walker specifically says, you know, again, speaking through Matthews, uh, Matthews says, Walker says, that the OIG never interviewed any of Walker's staff. So we have anonymous people. We know who they could be. And on the other side, we have uh, people who are willing to testify and could have testified to the OIG, but uh, were never actually spoken to. Now, Matthews claims specifically that he wasn't interviewed, despite that he the fact uh, that he was a personal friend and former work colleague at the Department of Defense with both Miller and McCarthy. Um, in fact, he says that he sent an email to Chris Miller at 2.21 p.m., and the uh, Department of Defense OIG report uh, never, you know, mentions this email. And no one from the OIG ever asked him about that email. And so, again, I'm assuming that document is also in possession of the committee. Um, and, you know, it would be nice to see uh, McCarthy uh, or, sorry, Miller actually address, you know, what he did with this email that, you know, is not mentioned in the report, uh, but which, you know, presumably, definitely exists. Now, during this section, there's a, a rather odd digression detailing the relationship between Matthews, McCarthy, and Flynn. Um, at one point, and this is where it kind of gets personal uh, to a little bit, uh, Matthews actually credits himself with, at one point, saving Flynn's career. Uh, quote, nonetheless, Matthews would be forced to say under oath that he was on the 2.30 p.m. call, that he knew 
both Matt Piott and Flynn quite well and that both were absolute and unmitigated liars, end quote. So again, Matthews would say under oath that Flynn was definitely on the call and that both Piott and Flynn, uh, who he knows personally, are absolute and unmitigated liars. And then that's one of the sections that, that the media uh, actually did glom on to. And going through the section of the memo, there, there is a, a bit of you know personal stuff that I don't think is well organized as other parts of the memo. Uh, just seemingly unrelated facts, such as the, the idea that, quote, Matthews knew Piat and Flynn didn't respect Miller or Walker. Just, end quote. Kind of a interesting detail. Don't know really how it's relevant. Um, but, you know, just goes to show Matthew has an, Matthews has an independent relationship uh, with both McCarthy and Miller and, uh, you know, um, also with, with Flynn. Uh, and, you know, in fact, actually credits himself with intervening on behalf of Flynn's uh, behalf. Um, and yet, you know, no one's answering his emails uh, and, you know, or is even talking to him at this point because they want to avoid deploying the D.C. National Guard. Now, the next section is really uh, substantively um, just a recounting of some of the claims that have already been made. Uh, it does have a, a rather uh, stinging uh, bit of prose, uh, which calls the Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General report, quote, a revisionist tract worthy of the best Stalinist or North Korean propagandist, end quote. But, you know, a, a nice turn of phrase. Again, Matthews has his own agenda, but on one side you have sworn testimony and on the and you know records and email records and phone records and uh on the other side the side that's stonewalling we haven't seen anything right no plan you know uh with phone call evidence uh you know again if you say these phone calls are made produce the, the phone records and be interesting to know if those phone records have actually been included in some of the phone records that we know the committee already has all right, now the next section is entitled Lying Under Oath, and it consists of examples of people lying under oath. Here's a, an example from General Piot. Piot told the House Oversight and Reform Committee that Walker told McCarthy that the quick reaction force could be ready in 20 minutes, and that McCarthy all ordered him to deploy the quick reaction force. Walker denies that this, this exchange happened at all, right? Talked about that already. But again, that's an example of the kind of perjury that uh, Matthews and Walker are accusing, in this instance, General Piot of committing. Uh, also, uh, on the, of the call, Piot claims that Bowser was on the call, right, in his testimony before the House Oversight and Reform Committee, when in fact, she wasn't. And he had her uttering statements that she did not, in fact, make. Um, and McCarthy was not ever on the 2.30 call at all. And again, his sworn uh, testimony is that he was. Flynn and Piot are also uh, inconsistent on the point of whether McCarthy was um, actually in his office. Uh, and there's just different little timeline things. 
Um, you know, was he in his office or is he in Chris Miller's office at or around 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, 2.21? Piot also claims that the um, Army staff actively took part in planning the actions that the National Guard would take. And Walker says they did not. I.e., uh, you know, Piot says that he's got uh, people who were working on recalling guardsmen from their civilian workplaces, making a deployment plan, um, and establishing roles for the use, rules for the use of force, that kind of thing. Walker says that Army staff did none of these things. Piot says they did, they did these things, and Walker says, no, they don't do these things. The work was actually done by Brigadier General Robert K. Ryan. So uh, you, you've got, you know, the Pentagon claiming to do work that would ordinarily be done by the National Guard, and you've got the National Guard actually doing the work, and we've got a Brigadier General who's willing to testify that, no, he did those things that the Army, that General Piat is claiming, uh, was done at the Pentagon level for some strange reason. Pentagon, you know, they're not, like, recalling people from this. It's absurd, right? Recalling, you know, that's not a, you know, Army staff level thing. Piot also claims Army staff would uh, deal with these issues of deputization and rules of use of force. Matthews notes that that work is actually done by the D.C. National Guard judge advocates, i.e. himself and other D.C. National Guard attorneys. Walker also refutes Piot's sworn claim that D.C. National Guard wasn't ready for the change in mission. He says that he and Brigadier General Dean and Brigadier General Ryan and Lieutenant Colonel Hunter all united to respond immediately. And he estimated that he could have had 131 guardsmen immediately and an additional 200 in two hours. The memo also claims that Piot lied about Army staff planning to recall and redeploy guardsmen. The memo also claims that Flynn claimed uh, he had 40 officers and NCOs working to recall 154 National Guardsmen and redeploy them. Again, Flynn's not in the chain of command here uh, of the D.C. National Guard in any capacity. The memo states, quote, It is so astounding on its face that it defies reason, end quote. These are D.C. National Guardsmen already on duty, kitted up, and trained, why would they need someone from the Army staff to, quote, organize and acquaint them, right? Um, so, you know, it, it is an odd claim for, for Flynn to make. Walker just, you know, he, he totally takes uh, exception to, to, to all these claims. And uh, he notes that the names of the officers uh, for whom, you know, the work that, that Flynn and Piot are claiming to have done was actually done by people uh, who were working for him. So Robert Ryan, Lieutenant Colonel Craig Hunter, uh, he called, you know, he cites them specifically. It's like, no, th these are the guys who, who do this kind of stuff. And he notes that defending the Capitol is literally the foundational mission of the D.C. National Guard and that the Capitol Dome itself is on the patch of the D.C. National Guard. Uh, it's not an Army staff function. And Walker takes note that the only thing that uh, the army staff actually did 
was to restrict the deployment of the quick reaction force, right? And you, you know, you probably heard about this as well, right? What the army staff actually did was to, you know, take that away from General Walker and say, no, no, you, you, you're going to have to uh, get uh, official confirmation on the deployment of that uh, from Miller and McCarthy. Another claim that they take issue with is the idea that uh, Ryan McCarthy, quote, surveyed the Capitol to, quote, establish where the best anchor point would be. And that claim was made by General Piat. And Walker says that's really absurd. Uh, for one thing, General Piat says this, but it's not in the official DOD timeline established in the OIG report. And Walker's absolutely scathing on this point. The Secretary of the Army isn't supposed to do tactical re reconnaissance. And Matthews asks, why didn't he stop by and Steve, Steve, Steve Sund, Chief Carroll, or Lieutenant Colonel Hunter, right? You've got the Secretary of the Army do, supposedly doing tactical reconnaissance at the Capitol. Why didn't he stop by and see these people? The inference that I would draw on this is that um, maybe Ryan McCarthy wanted to see how things are going. At this point in time, he's like, well, are, you know, who's going to win? Um, you know, if we, is it, if we, do we need to delay deployment of the Guard further? Um, so that, you know, to, to my mind, that that's an open question here. Why does he supposedly do tactical reconnaissance? If he did tactical reconnaissance, why isn't that in the OIG report? Or was Piot lying about this? Um I think it's possible there's, you know, we don't know where Ryan McCarthy was. It's possible he did go to the Capitol. He wanted to see if things are going. And the question is why? Is he doing it because he wants to deploy the Guard? He could deploy the Guard at any time. So Walker also claims that Piot lied when he told the committee that he recommended that the D.C. National Guard deploy to direct traffic rather than to defend the Capitol. Walker writes that the whole room that he's, you know, everyone in the room is uh, willing, you know, heard Piat say, no, I want you guys directing traffic, right? So, again, um, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, you know, Piat isn't, you know, he's not against deploying the guard, but, you know, he doesn't want them deployed at the Capitol, right? Um, and the, everybody in the room hears him say this. Uh, you know, he wants them directing traffic and... Um, you know, yeah, uh, it's it just, and again, you know, let's get this on the record. Let, let's have Piat go uh, before the, uh, you know, a different committee this time. And, uh, you know, let's just line them up and see whose account uh, measures up. So Walker also says Piat lied when the committee asked about inconsistencies between the Army timeline and the National Guard timeline. And he knows that Piat uh, created the Army timeline himself and all of its inconsistencies. Um, Piat says there was chaos rather than, you know, uh, in any malfeasance on his part, that there's inconsistency. And Walker says, no, this is just perjury. This is just completely perjured and that the OIG report um, is a joke. And he also claims that Piat lied when he told the committee that he didn't tell the D.C. National Guard not to deploy. In another lie, uh, Walker says that Piot lied when he was asked about optics, noting that he, Chief Sund, and Chief Conti all recall Walker uh, obsessed with this idea of optics. 
And he also says that four other DC National Guard soldiers uh, recall uh, Piat specifically talking about optics. Moreover, uh, there was an Army note-taker present in McCarthy's office, and uh, a, a note-taker uh, in Major General Walker's office, and both sets of notes agree, right? So again, you know, pretty clear, right? You have note-takers on both ends who say that Piat talks about optics. Uh, Piat says before Congress that he doesn't do that, and yet everybody else says, yeah, yeah, he did. So... Um, there's also a claim that Walker and uh, Matthews makes that Flynn lied about the optics question himself. He was also talking about optics, and Walker calls this testimony, quote, outright perjury. All right, so that's the, the section on the lies, and there's just many lies that, you know, again, you might want to question what Walker and Matthews are doing here, but on their side, they have phone records. On their side, they have documentation. On they, their side, they have a room full of D.C. National Guard officers. And on the other side, we have um, anonymous uh, Army officers who are offering testimony that uh, is inconsistent with is sometimes uh, their own testimony, sometimes uh, with testimony of, of other people, right? It's like they can't keep their lies straight. So that is why there's this very bold claim up front that uh, General Flynn and General Piot committed perjury, All right, both in the OIG report and also in sworn testimony before the House Oversight and Reform Committee. All right, now we get to the conclusion of the uh, Walker slash Matthews memo. So what does Walker want? What he wants out of this is an independent review of the findings of the DOD OIG report. And he also would like this Army report, which was created at the direction of General Piat, which Walker believes forms the basis for the DOD OIG report. He wants that to be released. That is not public. Why does that matter? Well, again, you know, Piat authors this self-serving report doesn't publish it, is um, apparently talked out of it. And uh, instead, that goes, uh, the investigation goes to the Office of the Inspector General, and they apparently take elements of that report, perhaps even to include actual testimony. We don't know. Uh, so, you know, it would be good if we actually had that report, uh, which, you know, can't be destroyed, right? So somewhere there's a record of this, this report. Let's compare that to the official OIG work product. The other thing that Walker wants is a review of the official Army timeline. Quote, evidence of the actual planning activities of the Army staff, and especially of the G357 under Brigadier Lenev and Lieutenant General Flynn. End quote. So again, part of the central narrative is there, there were supposedly like um, 40 people doing planning at this point in time. Well, where's their work product? Where's the actual evidence that any planning was actually occurring? Maybe there was a plan. Maybe the real plan is the Eastman memo. Hmm. Um, but, you know, again, there's supposedly a plan. It's central to their narrative. Let them produce it. So and, and that, those are the, the actions, the, the sort of action points, right? So we, he wants to see this plan that, that Piat produced. He wants to see evidence of the actual planning that was supposedly critical 
to to Ryan McCarthy's you know authorization, um, you know, which again accounts for a, an additional delay between three o five and uh, three o uh, sorry five o eight p.m. and you know, um, Congress uh, presumably is going to ask for these materials, and and we'll see. Now, at the end, uh, in, in addition to the conclusion, in addition to these action items, you also have a series of unanswered questions, which I, I think are interesting. Um, you know, and these are, you know, things that, well, if the media is really interested in the report, they, they could follow up on and, and ask these questions. Um, I know that the, I'm sure the committee is going to be following up these questions. And these are all direct quotes. I'll just read them. Did Miller believe he had authorized the actual deployment of the D.C. National Guard to the Capitol so that McCarthy's decision to seek his concurrence of a Capitol deployment plan was not required? Again, did Miller, you know, um, believe he, at 305 or whenever, that he'd actually, when he talks to McCarthy, you know, which again, we all know that happened, uh, did he believe that, you know, deployment was actually going to happen at this point? Um so, you know, is this something that McCarthy does on his own initiative to effectuate a further two-hour delay? It's an interesting question. Next one. Where was Ryan McCarthy on the afternoon of the 6th of January? What is his personal timeline? We don't have that. And that's a, that's a, a basic fact, right? And that goes from 149 to 508. The only thing that we really know for sure is that at some point he's a participant in a 17-minute news conference that doesn't actually appear in the official DOD OIG report. Next question. Where did Secretary McCarthy call Major General Walker from at 3.05 p.m., 4.35 p.m., and 5 o'clock p.m.? Four calls. Sorry, three calls. Four. No, three. Um, three calls that McCarthy claims he made to Major General Walker authorizing and reauthorizing and reissuing uh, the order to deploy. Should be simple. Produce your phone records. What calls? Was this a landline? Was this your personal cell phone? Where's the call coming from? Um, you know, presumably Major General Walker has produced his phone records, right? So, you know, it's an interesting question. And again, you know, I, I know that like he, Matthews is really reserving a lot of desire for Piot and Flynn. But to my mind, like the actions of, of Ryan McCarthy and all this are just absolutely astounding. And uh, this is someone who, you know, really, you know, should be called to account um, because, he, yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, he didn't call. At no point did he call Major General Walker. Whatever you, you think of you know, the rest of his account, whether or not you think this narrative is self-serving, I, I really think that that never happened. And so there needs to be an accounting for this. All right, next question. What phones were used to call acting Secretary Miller and Major General Walker? Again, you know, if Ryan McCarthy says he's calling people, well, let's see the records. Next question. Why didn't McCarthy and or Lenev, Brigadier Lenev, invite D.C. National Guard participation in the planning that occurred at the Metropolitan Police Department. That's, that's a fair point. One might ask that. And again, you know, I think the whole point of McCarthy's visit to the uh, press conference uh, was to dissuade Bowser from saying that the National Guard deploy deployment 
had actually been refused. Next question, who conveyed the plan, any plan, to the D.C. National Guard? Spoiler alert, that plan was never conveyed to the D.C. National Guard. It was all a red herring. Next question, were congressional leaders and the press misled by being told that the D.C. National Guard was mobilized with an inference that the D.C. National Guard had been approved to come to the Capitol? I think the answer to that is yeah, right? That was the whole point, again, of that press conference. Final question, what kind of operation are Troy O'Donnell and Marguerite C. Harrison running what is their agenda? Interesting question, which is not really brought up in the memo itself. It's just the last one um, and leaves it hanging there. All right, I know I've gone a little long uh, in this episode, but again, take the time. Uh, it's in the original Politico, Politico article. I will put the link in the show notes where you can actually download and judge for yourself. I mean, that is my take. Those are my notes on the Matthew memo, on uh, which was, again, uh, used, produced from um, Colonel Matthew's own notes, the recollections of Major General Walker and uh, the rest of Walker's staff who were deployed at the D.C. Armory on January 6th. I think it's damning. I think that this is something to which uh, we should pay attention because uh, there are people whose sworn testimony is clearly drawn into question uh, certainly, uh, you know, Generals Flynn and Piot, uh, you know, and uh, my belief, Chris Miller and Ryan McCarthy as well. Thank you so much and have a wonderful, wonderful day.